Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about oncology-accelerated approvals in clinical guidelines with Drs. Maryam Mughali and Reshma Ramachandran. Dr. Mughali is a postdoctoral associate and member of the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, and Dr. Ramachandran is an assistant professor of medicine in the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe we'll start off by each of you telling us a little bit more about yourselves and and what it is you do. And Maryam, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. So uh, I'm currently um, studying regulatory science and health policy. And the reason that I became uh, passionate about this topic was that I realized how regulatory science and health policy play a critical role in shaping and safeguarding public health. And that is because they provide frameworks and guidelines for ensuring the safety and efficacy of drugs and other medical products. And also they're very essential for maintaining public trust and confidence in the healthcare system. And um, that is why I'm interested in this particular topic. And cancer, as you know, is a serious public health issue with unfortunately uh, lots of deaths and um, decreased in quality of life associated with it. But thanks to advancement in technology, new drugs are being developed for cancer treatment at a very fast pace. And these drugs need to be approved uh, by regulatory agencies before entering to the market. And I'm particularly uh, studying this portion of it. Fantastic. And uh, Reshma, maybe you can tell us a bit more about yourself and what you do. Um, In addition to being an assistant professor uh, within uh, the Department of Internal Medicine, I also co-direct a regulatory um, research and policy program called the Yale Collaboration for Regulatory Rigor, Integrity and Transparency, or Yale CRIT. Um, So with me and Miriam and a number of other Yale faculty, we actually do study uh, medical product evaluation by the FDA, but also other federal agencies, um, their regulation and also approval, and um, try to look at this from the lens of being practicing clinicians and wanting to improve patient outcomes. Um, So a lot of our work is trying to really realign a lot of these processes that federal agencies do to make sure that they're centered on patients and that we're actually ensuring that our patients have access to truly safe and effective products as they're coming to market. Yeah. You know, I think the whole idea of innovation and the rapidity with which drugs and devices, vaccines, etc. are approved is so important. And we've certainly seen this uh, with the pandemic. And I think that there is still a lot of public skepticism or concern or simply lack of education about how that regulatory process works and what are the safeguards. Um, certainly when things are being approved very quickly, um, we, we do have concerns about how exactly that process works. So, Mariam, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about um, how drugs, particularly oncology drugs, come to market and what that regulatory process really looks like. Yes. Uh, so FDA has been using uh, different types of approval uh, for um, ensuring timely access of the drugs uh, by the patients. And in particular, uh, one uh, type of approval is called accelerated approval. 
And tr- through this process, um, the mm, pharmaceutical companies uh, needs to show that the drug that they have developed for a serious or life-threatening condition such as cancer, um, it has been shown to um, improve markers that are reasonably likely to um, predict clinical benefit. However, um, Although these drugs are available in the market, uh, the companies are uh, required to do post-approval confirmatory trials to uh, further assess the drug while patients can uh, take advantage of these drugs. And then, uh, based on the generated results from these trials, uh, the FDA can convert uh, the accepted approval to the traditional approval, or uh, if um, the trials show that those uh, drugs are not as useful as they thought, the FDA would withdraw it from the market. So uh, this is, uh, as you mentioned, like a trade-off between uh, patient access and also there's a bit of uncertainty about the clinical uh, efficacy of these uh, drugs. And so, Reshma, to you, you know, in terms of trying to look at and study and improve the rigor with which the FDA approves these drugs. Tell us a bit more about your work in this area and kind of how you're trying to drive this process to improving outcomes. Definitely. Um, You know, accelerated approval is a really nice example of the balance that FDA actually has to consider, um, as Mary mentioned, between timely access, but also ensuring um, evaluation of safety and efficacy. Our work is trying to look at that trade-off amongst accelerated approvals, but also other drugs that are undergoing FDA approval to see, you know, what are the trial designs like for accelerated approval drugs? And more importantly, for confirmation of clinical benefit, um, how do we actually look at um, the types of studies that FDA is um, looking at to actually confirm clinical benefit? Are they using clinical outcomes, for instance, um, for confirming clinical benefit? Or as we're finding through our research, a large number of them are actually using surrogate outcomes or the same outcomes that were used for accelerated approval. So that sort of clinical uncertainty of whether or not it actually improves how patients feel, function, or survive still remains even when those confirmatory studies are done. Um, A big part of our work now is actually looking at um, how FDA uh, communicates these findings to clinicians. Um, particularly, you know, we know as as practicing physicians, oftentimes we're not looking at, you know, the pivotal studies, um, those publications that are coming out around uh, new drug approvals. Um, we're not looking at drug labels necessarily uh, for various drugs that are coming to market. We're oftentimes relying on clinical practice guidelines. So we're looking at how FDA is actually communicating that uh, to clinical practice guidelines and how uh, clinical practice guidelines are reflecting both FDA status, but also those confirmatory trials. Are they making changes when new evidence comes to light about these drugs? Um, Are they making decisions that are discordant with the FDA in terms of their status? And that was the basis of of work that Miriam actually recently presented um, at uh, ASCO um, recently uh, this past uh, last month. So uh, I want to get to uh, that presentation and to clinical practice guidelines in a minute. But before we do that, you know, Mariam, I think one of the issues um, uh, that may be concerning to some of our listeners is that, you know, the the studies that are leading to approval of these drugs are based on oftentimes surrogate outcomes. And even the post-market analyses may be using, as Reshma said, the same surrogate outcomes. And, you know, part of that might be because 
if we're thinking about, um, you know, early stage disease, for example, you know, outcomes such as death or recurrence might take a long time to get there. But is there a way around that? Because I, I think that certainly people would want to know that the drugs that they're taking actually have clinical impact uh, on them in terms of survival and recurrence rather than simply changing uh, a blood test. Mm-hmm. So um, these drugs um, are being evaluated in the post-approval confirmatory trials to confirm that. But meanwhile, um, I heard that many patients, they prefer to try whatever option is is available for them because some of them might not have enough chance to wait until all the post-approval trials and also all the long-term studies are being completed. And some of them, they have like very short chance and um, they prefer to take the risk and uh, try whatever is out there. But I agree with you that um, many patients prefer to um, take the drugs that have confirmed clinical benefit, which is either an improvement in the quality of life or um, improvement in their survival. I I think, you know, with accelerated approval, um, the nice thing is that, you know, FDA has created this pathway for timely access, especially for patients where there might not be treatment options available um, or, you know, they've tried other things and they just haven't worked. Um, the trade-off, though, and the bargain um, that manufacturers are getting in exchange for earlier access is those completion of those confirmatory studies. And our work and others have shown that there's been a lot of concern that those confirmatory studies are either not being done in a timely manner, often delayed, or sometimes manufacturers are not even starting them, and that the endpoints that they're using actually don't confirm clinical benefit. Um, so I, I think this is, you know, a lot of our work has been centered around how can FDA strengthen that oversight on the back end so that we have reassurance as clinicians and for our patients as well that um, confirmation of clinical benefits is actually happening. You know, as Mary mentioned, overall survival, for instance, quality of life is actually being improved as a result of these drugs because patients are oftentimes having to you know, make trade-offs as well in terms of selecting that drug to actually take. You know, the side effects that come with you know, new chemotherapy drugs that come onto the market as well, and then also the financial opportunity costs that come with these high prices um, for a number of accelerated approval drugs. So you know, our work and research is really focused around trying to make sure um, there are ways that FDA can strengthen its oversight so that we as clinicians prescribing these drugs or recommending these drugs have assurance that these drugs actually work and that our patients know for certain um, that there is confirmation of that clinical benefit they're hoping to see. When the FDA uh, puts out these clinical practice guidelines, many times it may be done in the absence of those robust uh, clinical outcome measures. So how is it that they do communicate with clinicians? I mean, is it very clear in those guidelines that, you know, this is based on surrogate markers, that we don't have long-term data in terms of survival benefit? Is that information being conveyed to clinicians and, and to patients? You know, unfortunately not. And you know, FDA uh, with has made some recommendations to sponsors to say within drug labels that that sort of uncertainty in terms of, you know, their confirmation of clinical benefit is still pending. The approval is based on surrogate endpoints um, is included, um, although we've, we've, we've seen some recent work that about 13% of accelerated approval uh, labels, for instance, don't actually include that information. Uh, but in clinical practice guidelines, we actually see a wide variation and unfortunately not a lot of consistency in terms of conveying that uncertainty to clinicians and the fact that there is still confirmation of clinical benefit that's needed. I know Marion can speak to, 
you know, more, the more specific results of um, the work that we've done. But the implications are, are pretty big in terms of, you know, how do physicians actually understand how well these drugs actually work? How do patients as well, once their physicians re- recommend these new treatments? And then, of course, for payers, because a number of clinical practice guidelines, especially in oncology, um, oftentimes are taken by payers to actually make coverage decisions. And so we want to look specifically at those guidelines to see what the impact would be on all these stakeholders, and especially in conveying the sort of uncertainty there is with accelerated approval. Yeah. So, Miriam, maybe you can talk a little bit more about your your work and the findings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, as Reshma said, we took uh, a look at um, the oncology clinical practice guidelines to see uh, how do they make recommendations for um, drugs with accelerated approval. And uh, we found that many times they do not acknowledge a data of approval. And by that, I mean that they do not distinguish between accelerated approval versus the traditional approval that the FDA um, has in general. And um, we found that uh, also... um, they do not clearly uh, specify the surrogate marker when uh, talking about the trials that were uh, the basis for um, the accelerated approval. And something else uh, that we did um, was to compare um, ha- compare guidelines recommendation across time as uh, further results of the post-approval confirmatory trials are being uh, published. And so I want to pick up on that conversation. But first, we do need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about oncology accelerated approvals with my guests, uh, Dr. Maryam Mugali and Reshma Ramachandran. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their oncodermatology program treats dermatologic concerns, including very dry skin, itching, and skin changes that arise as side effects from chemotherapy. SmiloCancerHospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Maryam Mugali and Reshma Ramachandran. We're talking about oncology-accelerated approvals in clinical guidelines. And right before the break, Maryam, you were telling us about some of the work that you presented at ASCO uh, just recently this year. Um, looking at how the FDA actually communicates these accelerated approvals in terms of clinical guidelines. And one of the things that I found kind of concerning was that oftentimes, if I understood you correctly, 
the fact that some of these approvals were based on surrogate markers, which surrogate marker, uh, the fact that it was an accelerated approval and not a final approval, um, are not readily identifiable in the clinical guidelines, and that this doesn't necessarily change over time, even when further data emerges. Is that right? Yes. So, um, actually, we found that um, the clinical practice guidelines are not always transparent about the type of approval and also about the type of endpoint. Although they uh, name the endpoint that they have used, they do not uh, communicate the uncertainty of the endpoints that were used for uh, approval of uh, those drugs with accelerated approval. And also over time, uh, we looked at um, whether the guidelines update their recommendation when um, the results of the post-approval confirmatory trials are out there and also when um, FDA updates their decision. And we found that uh, many cases they do, but there are still um, inconsistencies. And we were surprised to see that uh, in uh, some instances, although um, the post-approval confirmatory trial uh, did not show clinical benefit, the guidelines was still recommending the drug. Wow. That's interesting. So even if confirmatory trials don't show a clinical benefit, the clinical practice guidelines could still be recommending this drug. Patients uh, may continue to take it thinking that perhaps there is a benefit um, and incurring the financial toxicity as well as the physical toxicity related to the drug. Is that right? Yes, uh, that does not happen in all the cases, but we found some uh, indications that were uh, continued to be recommended um, despite not showing benefit. And as you said, that um, highlights uh, the fact that there could be um, some um, miscommunication and maybe patient, maybe physicians are not fully aware of uh, what is behind those drugs. And so, Reshma, to you, talk a little bit more about the implications of this and any plans you might have in terms of changing public policy, changing the way the FDA does things to make things a little bit more transparent for clinicians, for providers, and as you say, for payers as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it was, you know, concerning to see that there were instances, not just when the confirmatory trials um, did not find a clinical benefit, that the guidelines continue to recommend them. But even instances when the FDA had actually withdrawn the drug from the market, where the guideline had continued to rec recommend um, some of these drugs. Um, so, you know, both of those um, sort of issues highlight the need for FDA to better communicate with the guideline committees about um, the status of those confirmatory trials um, and about, um, you know, the status in terms of whether or not they're going to be withdrawn from the market or FDA is going to continue um, to allow the indication to persist. So wait, just to make sure I heard that correctly. So when the FDA has an accelerated approval, they approve the drug based on a surrogate marker. The pharmaceutical company does, hopefully in a relatively timely fashion, although not always, a post-market confirmatory study. If the post-market confirmatory study does not warrant the drug being on the market, the FDA pulls it. But still, their clinical practice guidelines may still recommend the drug. How can that happen? Yeah, they can they can still recommend the drug. And part of it is also because a number of these drugs are approved for multiple indications. So when FDA withdraws 
you know, the drug, we're actually saying that the FDA is withdrawing the drug for that specific indication. So the drug is still available for clinicians to prescribe off-label in this case. Um, and that would mean, you know, they'd, they'd be following the clinical practice guidelines, but it would be an off-label use, something that FDA has already withdrawn that indication use for for that specific drug. And so the discordance is quite remarkable. I mean, and obviously the implications for a number of stakeholders, but especially patients, is troubling. So we're hoping that there will be better alignment um, between what these practice guidelines um, reflect um, in terms of the results from these confirmatory studies. You know, if the study is negative, you know, they do actually say that the study is negative and they might make recommendations are in accordance to that, or at least be transparent in terms, in terms of their decision-making for why they continue to re- recommend the drug despite having a negative study. And especially if the FDA has made a determination in looking at, you know, not just trial-level data, they look at individual participant-level data from these trials and make a determination of whether or not the drug should be withdrawn or should be converted to traditional approval, that the guidelines also reflect um, that sort of decision-making. Um, but unfortunately, you know, this sort of discordance has uh, a number of troublesome, you know, implications on patients and in our healthcare system altogether. We're seeing, you know, Medicare um, spending in particular billions of dollars on a number of these drugs where confirmation of clinical benefit has not been shown and sometimes where, you know, confirmation of clinical benefit um, has been, uh, you know, has been shown to be negative. And there, you know, there, there's not been an improvement in terms of how patients are doing um, as a result of these drugs once those studies are completed. Mariam, what are you doing next in terms of actually getting your data in front of the FDA and trying to affect change? I mean, is there public policy changes somewhere in our future? I hope that there is. And um, so we are calling some actions from the FDA and also uh, the guideline panels. I think that... um, there should be more structured um, template, I would say, for the guidelines to specify the type of approval when they are making the recommendations and also to specify the type of endpoints that were used to um, get the approval. And in terms of being updated and communicating the post-approval confirmatory trials and also the updated, the FDA's updated decision, I think that more structure would uh, also uh, help that as well. And... Um, From the FDA side, as Reshma said, I think the main point is to improve the communication, to make sure that the information is transparent and is available to uh, all the stakeholders that need to have that information, including uh, physicians and payers in particular, and also um, patients as well. And so, Reshma, have you made any headway in terms of actually getting those policy changes through? And um, have you had any pushback, uh, you know, from pharmaceutical companies, for example, who have a very large lobbying presence um, or others where they say, you know, leave well enough alone, even though well enough might not be good enough? Yeah. Um, so this past year, there were a number of reforms that were passed in Congress um, to the accelerated approval pathway. And our group through Gail Crit um, was involved in actually meeting with legislators, but also FDA official to discuss these reforms in various settings. Uh, one of the things that we had hoped would be a part of those reforms was actually this sort of structured template that um, Mary was talking about that actually FDA has recommended in guidance around communicating accelerated approval onto the drug 
drug label. Unfortunately, though, um, that was not passed as part of the legislation. So there's not a hard and fast requirement that FDA in its own drug labels actually talks about um, what accelerated approval is, that there's confirmation of clinical benefits still pending, that the approval is based on a surrogate endpoint. So you can imagine since there's not a hard and fast template for the drug label, that sort of template is not being used in the clinical practice guidelines as well. So we'll be continuing to kind of ask for that sort of structure um, from the FDA and its own drug labels, but also communicating that to the clinical practice guidelines so that there is parity and more concordance between what the FDA is reviewing and their decision making and with what the clinical, clinical practice guidelines are showing. A big part of our work, though, will be the translation of our study findings um, from um, this particular work that Marion was describing to different stakeholders, not just at the FDA and not just folks at Congress, but more importantly, um, the guideline committees and the leadership there to actually make sure that they are being transparent to clinicians, especially practicing clinicians who are prescribing these treatments in real time to their patients about the level of evidence behind um, those drugs. And then also the fact that there is uncertainty um, that needs to be conveyed to patients um, at the time of accelerated approval and that there's going to be confirmation of clinical benefits still pending. So we're hopeful uh, as we um, continue uh, work on getting our work out there through publications, but also a meeting with various stakeholders that we can make those sort of changes. Yeah. And Miriam, you know, something that you mentioned that I think um, needs to be highlighted is that even Medicare, a, a federal agency who should know um, the FDA process with regards to these accelerated approvals and the clinical practice guidelines, even Medicare can approve drugs, pay for them with our exploding healthcare budget for drugs that aren't efficacious, uh, that the FDA uh, may have withdrawn from that indication. Uh, one would think that at least between two federal agencies, there would be some communication. Uh, is there not? And is there some thought about changing that, especially when we think about the budget crisis that we're currently in? Yes, that is a real challenge. And how um, the CMS coverage uh, for these types of drug work is that it relies on the level of evidence um, that is uh, recommended, that is uh, described by the clinical practice guidelines in this case. And because these um, drugs and also the whole situation is very complex, so they are part of part of that is relying on the guideline recommendations. And this also underlines the point that if guidelines are not communicating and are not being updated well, uh, that's, that could um, put the CMS or other agencies in a place that they are not making the best uh, best uh, like decision, which can increase unnecessary cost and uh, affect um, the health healthcare system in general. Yeah, remarkable. So, Reshma, what's next uh, for your research and and for the work that you've been doing in this area? Uh, I think a big part of our work now is actually looking at these various surrogate endpoints that are a basis of accelerated approval. Um, we're seeing accelerated approval actually even moving outside the oncology space um, to other um, drug er- other disease areas, such as Alzheimer's and rare diseases. And so if there's going to be increased reliance on these surrogate endpoints, we want to make sure that there's going to be some sort of validation process to actually uh, ensure that these surrogate endpoints do reflect or are associated with clinical benefit. With accelerated approval, these are unvalidated surrogate endpoints, and that confirmatory study 
study is critical for actually showing that there is any sort of association with clinical benefit. However, um, you know, we're we're doing work right now to actually um, look at um, the literature and other studies to actually ensure um, that there might be a more rigid and structured validation process that FDA can use to be able to communicate what um, you know the burden of evidence is behind these surrogate endpoints to clinicians, but also to patients as well. And I think that's going to be the critical next step as we see increased adoption of accelerated approval. And we're also very interested in doing some work on how can there be improved communication between agencies like FDA and CMS, but also other payers as well. We see this in the medical device space a little bit more often uh, through things like parallel review, but we want to see this also more in the drug space um, where there's more communication and concordance between what FDA is doing and CMS is doing, and when it's appropriate, where they can act independently as well. Dr. Reshma Ramachandran is an assistant professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine And Dr. Mariam Mughali is a postdoctoral associate and member of the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.